Bibles tonight to the book of Revelation, chapter number 7. I hope you'll bear with me. I'm having a really difficult time seeing ever since I woke up from my nap. I I usually get over it in about 15 minutes, but it's been... uh, it's been three and a half hours, I guess, and I still can't hardly see a thing, and so we're going to try to wade through this. Revelation chapter number 7. Now, before we begin tonight, I want to remind you of something that I said back at the very beginning, and uh, something that helped me in understanding this book, I think, above everything else. I mentioned the fact that the book itself is divided up into three sections. Chapters 1 through 5 deals with before the tribulation period, and then beginning in chapter number 6 all the way through chapter number 9, that deals with the period during the tribulation, and then after chapter number 19, it deals with after the tribulation period. Well, quite obviously, we are in that middle section that has to do with the tribulation. But here's the thing that helped me, I think, more than anything else, because it was confusing to me as I would go through this book, and as you go through it, and he's opening seals and doing this and doing that, and one minute it's talking about what happens, you know, let's say at the rapture or the very beginning of the tribulation, and the next minute it's, it's describing something that happened uh, at the very end of the tribulation period, and then you turn to the next chapter and you're going back, In other words, if you try to look at it in a chronological fashion, you're totally confused. And so when it dawned upon me that, at least to my mind, it was apparent that we were seeing different pictures of the tribulation period. And that's why I said that chapter 6 was sort of a brief outline, as it were, of what happens during the tribulation, that section began with the very beginning, what we know, the Antichrist trying to establish his peace covenant with Israel and and gaining control of the world, as it were. But it ends up with the Lord coming back and people crying out for the rocks to fall upon them, to hide them from the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we come to chapter number 7, and in this chapter, and I mentioned this last week because you might think if there are four accounts in this section, that this would be starting a new section. In reality, this chapter is parenthetical. By that, I mean that our attention for a moment is turned away from the tribulation period to the breaking of the seven seals here, uh, and from the breaking of the seven seals to the mercy of God and the ministry of the 144,000 Jews. And so it, it, it's like the Lord saying, you know, before we go on and you consider any more that's going to happen in the tribulation, I, you know, I need to tell you this. And, and there are two, two things in this chapter that I want to call your attention to. You could divide it up into these two sections. The sealing of the Jews in the first eight verses and the salvation of the Gentiles beginning in verse 9 on through the remainder of the chapter. So let's begin reading in verse number 1 and we're going to read through these first eight verses and then comment on this. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, 
holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all of the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Naphtali was sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Ishkar were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. Now, here we see the sealing of the Jews, and that is quite apparent from from what we've just read. And uh, remember in chapter number 6, where it opened with the peace program of the Antichrist. He comes riding on the scene on the white horse, but it closes with a picture of the Lord's return. Here in chapter number 7, he just backs up to give us a picture, as it were, of what is going on with the Jews during that seven-year interval that we call the tribulation. In chapter number 6, you'll remember that the chapter opened with the sound of thunder. When you think of thunder, you think of, of, of an impending storm on the horizon. And that was, uh, that was exactly what happened. It started with thunder and ended up with the judgment of God coming down upon the chapter. But here in chapter number 7, we see the winds of restraint, uh, the winds of judgment being restrained long enough for 144,000 Jews to be sealed. And notice in verse number 3, these Jews are called the servants of our God. And from what follows, it seems that these Jews are going to make up a great evangelistic army that will be responsible for bringing multitudes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, some seem to think this is impossible, that it will never happen. And the skeptics, of course, attack us from every direction and on every hand trying to ridicule what the Bible says. And and they point out this little phrase many, many years ago they did where it speaks about the four corners of the earth. Do you realize that there had been much written about that, the folly of the Bible and how that it cannot possibly be accurate because, after all, you know, the earth is round. There can't be four corners of the earth. Well, we didn't know that until we started sending up satellites And after sending the satellites up, it was discovered that there are four magnetic poles, as you know, there are four corners, as it were, to the earth. God knew all about that long before we ever invented a satellite, you see. 
And God speaks about the four corners of the earth. But still, the skeptics won't let up. There have been others that have pointed out the fact that something must be terribly wrong with this account because they say the, the, the tribe of Dan is omitted from the list. And some have suggested, well, they were excluded because of idolatry. And that may or may not be true. Uh, but one thing is certain, God does not need to give an explanation for anything He does. And, and regardless of why Manasseh is mentioned instead of Gad is something that's known only to God, but that's God's business. If God wants to, you know, get rid of the tribe of Dan forever... That's that's his business. But according to Ezekiel chapter 48 and verse number 1, here's what we learn. This is why it's so important to compare Scripture with Scripture. We learn in that chapter that the tribe of Dan will receive an inheritance during the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And also, you ought to notice that the tribe of Levi, remember, it was the priestly tribe, and they had... No other, no inheritance like the other tribes, but they are included here. So what does all of this mean? Well, in light of all of these things, when you put it all together, this list does not seem to have any reference to a future inheritance. I mean, it doesn't say that, and we ought not to surmise that. That's not what he's getting at. That's not the subject of discussion. He's telling us here the tribes from which the 144,000 are composed. That's all that should matter. It has nothing to do with their inheritance during the millennial reign. It has to do with the 144,000 that make up this Jewish evangelistic army that's going to go forth. But... Again, it just reminds us that some people are always looking for some loose thread trying to, you know, trying to tug on it and destroy the credibility of the Bible. And there are people like that and they always end up making fools out of themselves. And you ought not to let that trouble you. Don't you get sidetracked by the false accusations that are brought against the Bible. And it might be, it might be that you cannot even explain you know, what it is they're protesting, look, you don't need to. It's a, it's a great day in your life whenever you get honest enough about your intelligence that you admit, I don't know it all. I don't know it all. I'll never forget when I went to work for the Missouri State Highway Department years ago and the resident engineer was a fellow by the name of Eddie Edwards. And so he took me out to the job site the first day and before he introduced me to the man in charge out there and let me go, he, he just stopped and he said, let's have a little chat in the car uh, before, before you, you get out. And uh, he said, I, I just want to tell you something right here that will help you a lot. If you don't know something, don't try to fake it. Just tell the, the, you know, the contractor, I don't know. But I can find out what the answer is. You know, that's good advice in whatever you do. Just admit that you don't know. By the way, God doesn't expect us to know everything. And there are a lot of mysteries in the Bible that we will never know. Quit trying to figure everything out. You know, like people, you know, wor- worried uh, about Jonah and the, the fish or the whale. Or, you know, they want to debate whether it was really a whale or whether it was a, just a great fish and whether it was possible for the 
fish to swallow Jonah and him to survive. Well, I'm kind of like the little boy that, you know, said, well, you know, even if the Bible had said that, that Jonah swallowed the whale, I'd still believe it. Well, uh, that's the way I feel about it. If the Bible says it, that settles it. We don't have to understand everything. So, here we see the Lord showing us that during this seven-year interval called the tribulation, that 144,000 Jews are going to be sealed. And by that, I take it that not only does that have reference to the fact that they are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, but that they are commissioned by Him to do His work and, and are protected until their work is through. Now that brings us to the second section of the book as we begin in verse number 9. And this section has to do with the salvation of the Gentiles. Verse 9 speaks about the people. Notice what he says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. So now, this is the people that he's speaking of. This is the people from all nations that will be converted during this time. You know, sometimes we think we're better off during times of prosperity But understand that during the tribulation, there will be more people saved during that seven-year period, no doubt, than in centuries here of the prosperity that we've enjoyed in America. Sometimes the thing that we need most is for things to not be so good. And God knows that. Now, look in 2 Thessalonians for just a moment, chapter number 2. There's something very important here that we need to understand. Second Thessalonians chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 10. And Paul writes, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, so that's the unsaved, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved, For this cause God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, and that all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, if you read the verses prior to this, it becomes very evident that he's talking here about the Antichrist. The Antichrist that will be revealed, and then he turns his attention to the unbelievers during that time. And and notice he says here, in verse number 9, "...whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and wonder, and then notice, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved." I mean, you've heard people say, well... Person can get saved any time they want to. Well, you know that's that's true in one regards, but the day is coming uh, when when it will not be true. It, it seems strange that God would send them a strong delusion. After all, does not God want everybody to be saved? The Bible says God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I mean, why would God send a strong delusion? and cause them to believe a lie. Why would he do that? Well, for the same reason that the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
But why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Because Pharaoh first hardened Pharaoh's heart. Whenever Pharaoh did that, God knew what he was going to do. God knew exactly the path that he was going to take. And it's sort of like there in Romans chapter number 1, where it says that it speaks about giving them over to a reprobate mind to do those things that are not convenient. In other words, I mean, if you just determine in your heart you want to take a certain course of action and live a life of sin, you can get to the place that God takes his hands off and says, there it is, you can have it. That's what you want. You've got it. You want to believe this lie? You want to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, here's the reason why this is so very important. According to that, those that believe the lie of of the Antichrist are going to be damned. Those that had an opportunity to receive the gospel will not be, be, be saved during that period of time. They're going to believe his lie. Now, all of a sudden, something here seems to clash because on one hand, we have Paul telling us that they're going to believe the lie of the Antichrist and that God will send them a strong delusion and they, you know, that they cannot be saved. Now, by that, it simply means this, I think, that those people that, that hear the gospel of Jesus Christ during that time and they reject it, God will send them that strong delusion and they'll be damned forever. But no, wait a minute. In this same chapter, we read about this great multitude that no man could number, that all of these people are going to be saved during that time. So who are these people? Who are these people? Remember, if they've heard, they're going to believe the lie and be damned. So evidently, they haven't heard. Now, there's something very important here because a lot of times I think we Christians in America are guilty of assuming that everybody's heard the gospel. There's a church on every corner. Everybody knows the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, according to this, they don't. And, and, and notice what he, what he tells us here about them being saved out of every, every, uh, every kindred and every tribe, every tongue, all of the, all of the nations. In other words, people from all over the place. That would include America. Look, folks, this is evidence that we have not evangelized America. It's proof that we have not evangelized the world. Because there are going to be many people that have never heard the gospel. Do you realize there are people right here in America that from their youth they've been caught up in some false religion. They've never heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ. All they know is what they've been taught. In Catholicism, for example, all they know is what they've been taught And they've been taught, you don't need to study the Bible, we'll tell you what it means. And they've been taught, as I've heard people say to me, whenever I would present what the Bible says, and they would say, well, you know, that's what it says, but it is against our religion to change our religion. That's the most stupid thing I've ever heard in my life. It's against my religion to change my religion, even if what my religion believes is not what the Bible teaches. And yet, look, that, that's where some people are today. People that have never, ever heard 
the gospel. And I'm telling you, I think with all of my heart that probably the majority of people in America have never heard the pure, simple gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that, go out here on a street corner and just take a survey. And as people come by, ask them, could you give me a definition of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You'll get all kinds of answers. But I bet there won't be but one or two out of a hundred that will quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and give you the right answer. Because they don't know. You might be surprised how many people are in Baptist churches that claim to be saved, that have no idea how to define the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, during this tribulation period, there are going to be multitudes that have never heard that finally, finally will turn to Jesus Christ. But they do so through the witness of 144,000 Jews. Turn over to the Old Testament for just a moment to Isaiah chapter number 60. Isaiah chapter number 60, because here we find it's speaking about Gentile converts being one to the Lord by Jews of all people. Remember, these are the same people that rejected Him. He came into His own and His own received Him not. The Jews rejected Him. But during the tribulation, their eyes will be opened, they'll be converted, and they will reach out to others. And Isaiah says, beginning in verse number 1, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. And remember, he's speaking to Israel. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about and see. All they gather themselves together, they come to thee. Thy son shall come from afar, and thy daughter shall be nursed at thy side, and then shall see, and then thou shalt see, and flow together, and thine heart shall fear, and be enlarged. Because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee, the forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. Look, when God sets out to do something, He gets the job done. And you remember, you look back at the ancient, at the ancient people of Israel, and you'll think about how they lived in rebellion for all of those years, in spite of all that God did. And we know that one generation after another generation failed God, even crucified His Son. But the end, when it's all said and done, this will be the most powerful evangelistic army the world has ever known. I'm talking about the people that came out of the loins of Abraham, the people that God purposed to be His witness here upon this earth. These are the people that God ordained that they be a light to the Gentiles. These are the people that He says, I set thee like a queen before the nations. In other words, as a queen demonstrates the glory of her king, God said to Israel, I've made you a queen that others might see me in you. And finally, at long last, that's going to happen. We win. We win. We win. Now, 
Those are the people of whom he speaks. Look at verse 9 now and notice their position. The people has to do with the Gentiles being saved as a result of the ministry of the Jews. Their position, verse number 9, says before the throne. Now what a glorious change they have experienced. Look in verse number 14. These are they which came out of great tribulation. Think about that for a minute. From the tribulation to the throne. From the worst to the best. Jesus said during the great tribulation there will be a time such as never was in the history of this world. The worst time that the world has ever known. These people would have been there. These people were in the tribulation And it was during the tribulation that they come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I can't help but believe that whenever the Jews experience the obvious fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture during that time, that suddenly their eyes are going to be open, this Jesus indeed truly is the Son of God. And the Gentiles that they witness to are people going through this horrible period of tribulation upon the earth. And as a result of that, what do you do when you're desperate? You look for help. And they look for help in the Lord. And those that have never heard the gospel hear the gospel and receive it. And they go from the tribulation to the very throne of God from the worst To the best. That's their position. Now look at verse 13 and notice their purity. He says they are arrayed in white robes. Now verse 14 tells us that their robes, notice, were made white in the blood of the Lamb. I'm telling you that's the only way anyone can be cleansed from their sins and made righteous. Right? There's power in the blood. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here they are standing before the throne of God in robes of white in perfect purity. That That is just so amazing to me to think about any of us ever becoming perfect. And yet it's going to happen. Perfection at long last. Somebody says, well, you know, I've been praying for years that God would heal me. Well, He's going to. He's going to. He's going to heal. It's just a matter of time. I remember eight or ten years ago preaching a message entitled that, I think. It's just a matter of time. And in just a matter of time, God's going to do all of these things. Maybe you think, well, I'll tell you, my husband or my wife or my kids, they're so mixed up, you know, they're, they're, they're never going to get close to perfection. Well, if they're saved, they will. It's just a matter of time. So here these people are that came out of great tribulations, having been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, standing before the throne of God. Now look at verse number 10. And notice their praise. I mean, after all, how could there not be praise in such a setting as this? And it says, And cried with a loud voice, saying, 
Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all of the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Wow! In the first place, everybody's attention is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way it ought to be here. That's where our focus needs to be. Remember, as the writer in Hebrews said, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finish of our faith, says, consider Him. That's where our focus must be. That's where the focus is in heaven. You know, it is so amazing to me how egotistical some preachers are. I, I was talking to Brother Rick before the service and he was talking about a situation and a fellow whose ego got him into trouble, a very popular preacher, and his ego absolutely ruined his reputation and, and in effect his ministry in a, in, in a lot of ways, all because he esteemed himself more highly than he ought to. Let me tell you, None of us are anybody. There's nothing good in any of us whatsoever. He is our only good, and that ought to bring forth praise from us. Now, look, if that's what's going on in heaven, think about that. That's what's going on around the throne of God. They fell down on their faces. And notice they are shouting, they're shouting, and they're saying, Amen, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. I mean, look, these people are excited. And I've got to wonder, you know, why aren't we more excited here in this world? I mentioned here a while back in one of the services that one of the local churches in this area, Bertie's son went there. And, and Jesse Ray told me, he, Jesse was excitable, as you know, he, he, he's the kind of person that every preacher, you know, dreams of and wishes you had about a dozen of them in the service saying amen. And, and this preacher called him out after the service and told him, we don't do that around here. I, you know, you calm down, you just stay quiet. Well, I'd have a nervous breakdown if I was in a church like that. I mean, I, I couldn't survive in a church like that, I don't think. I don't understand that for the life of me. You know, whenever we talk about the Church of Christ and the fact that they, they, they don't believe in having music in, instruments in the church, and what do we say? Well, there's going to be musical instruments in heaven, and so if we're going to have musical instruments up there, why can't we have them in the church? I think that's good logical reasoning. We have musical instruments. Well, the same thing, you know, I'd like to say to all of the deadhead Baptists in the world, if they're going to have shouting and saying amen and praising the Lord and falling on their face, if we're going to do that in heaven, why wouldn't we want to do that in church? If we're going to get excited up there, why wouldn't we be excited here? And here is a picture of what's going on of these people that have been saved as a result of the ministry of those Jews. And they're before the throne of God and they're shouting the praises of God. All eyes are on Jesus. But now notice verse 15, because here we see the privileges of these people. Verse number 15. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple... And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. 
Notice there are two things that jump out at me when I think about their privileges. First of all is the matter of service. They shall serve him day and night. I don't know of anything in all of the world that a Christian loves to do any more than serve God. If God has called you to preach, that's the thing that is most enjoyable to you. If God has put you in the music ministry, that is what is most enjoyable to you. If God has gifted you in other abilities and put you there. I told, I told somebody the other day, I said one thing about it. I don't have to worry one second about Brother Ron, what he's doing in the office, because I know he's taking care of business because this is serious business with him, and God's given him certain abilities to use in that way. I don't look over his shoulder or Kenneth's shoulder. I know they're doing their job. I know I know where their heart is. That's what they want to do. In fact, the other day I put on Facebook, and Ron told him, stay home, stay out of the office. Tell you he was sick, had no business being there, but he was there anyway. And so I, you know, I use my pastoral authority to tell him, "You stay home, stay out of the office, wait till you're better." You know, we don't, we don't want to lose you. Don't want you to die sitting in that chair in there just because you're stubborn. But the point is. When, when, look, whenever, whenever, you, when you love the Lord and you want to please God and you know what area God has gifted you in, you want to do that. That means more to you than anything else. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is we live in a fallen world and all of us live in weakened bodies. And we, all of us are struggling. We cannot always do the things that we enjoy doing the most. I'll tell you, if Bev was healthy, perfectly healthy all of the time, uh, she'd never stop. Because there's so many things that she likes to do. She takes being a homemaker serious. I mean, whether it's cleaning house or whatever it is, caring for children, I told her, don't worry about it during the millennium. God's going to put you in charge of the nursery somewhere because nobody loves children more than she does. But let me tell you, after a while, whenever your body begins to, well, do I need to explain? Whenever our flesh grows weary, and this is serious, it brings a tear to my eye when I think about it, The fact of the matter is sometimes we can't do what we want to do more than anything else. We just can't do it any longer. I've often said that I have no plans to ever retire from the ministry. But I'm not, I'm not a total fool and I realize that either my mind or my body could get to the point that I no longer could do what I do. I would be forced to resign. It's not that I want to, but I would have to because of my condition. Now, here's the wonderful thing. There we shall serve Him day and night. Now, there's no night there, but day and night's another way of saying continually. Without any interruption. Without any exhaustion. Continually. Wow, I, oh, 
that would be heaven to be able to do what you love the most and to be able to do it. And you never get tired. You never have opposition. You never have problems. You just serve the Lord day and night. Now, but that's just part of the privilege. Here's the other part. Not only is there service, but there's fellowship. It says, he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. And I fell on my knees and cried holy. Remember the song from this morning, I saw Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Paul and Timothy. But I said, oh, I want to see Jesus. Think about it. Not just seeing Him, but being with Him, serving Him for all of eternity. Now, one more thing. Verse 15, or verse 16 and 17. Here we see their provisions. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. You know, if I could just sum all of that up, and as he speaks about these various provisions that we have, don't get hungry anymore. I mean, living here on this earth, I cannot imagine living here and never having an appetite for biscuits and gravy or for ribeye steak, collard greens, mustard greens, any kind of green. I just can't imagine. I'd be really sick if I had no appetite for those things. But one of these days, I will have no appetite for those things because I will be perfectly Satisfied. Satisfied. That's the one word that leaps out at me when I think about these provisions. Regardless of, of the metaphor that he might use, the fact of the matter is, we are headed for a place where there will be full, constant satisfaction all of the time. He shall feed them. He shall lead them. Notice, And wipe away all tears. All tears. Every tear will be gone from my eye, the songwriter said. Think about it. Every tear. You've cried tears over a lot of different things, right? The death of a loved one, the waywardness of a child, broken health. All kinds of problems have brought tears to your eyes. But in that day, God's going to wipe away all of your tears. That's why I keep saying, the best is yet to come. Let's stand. Father, we thank you so much for your exceeding great and precious promises, as we've heard in song already and been reminded of the good and great things that you've done And Lord, how we thank you that even when we imagine the very worst, most horrible period of time on the face of the earth, the great tribulation, that out of that 
horrible set of circumstances and that grievous pain that people suffer, even out of that, out of the depths of that calamity will come forth the greatest move of evangelism the world has ever seen. A multitude that is so great that we can't even count them that will be saved during that time and enter into the fullness of an inheritance with the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us when we fail to get excited about it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand and As we sing the 